Business Growth Talks podcast is created and hosted by Mark Haywin. In this show, we talk about how to grow a business in the growth stage. The growth stage is often marked by rapid developments, increased revenue, and an escalating customer base. In each episode, we talk to entrepreneurs and business owners who have grown businesses, and we cover topics like scaling processes, market expansion, financial management, human resource and talent development, and customer retention. If you are looking for actionable advice, tips, and techniques on how to grow, run and build your business, this is the podcast for you. Today we have Damon Burton, who is a different type of a marketeer. He doesn't promote paid ads. His business is SEO National, which will help you grow your business by getting higher up on the search engines. Damon started his business in 2007, just before the credit crunch, so he knows how to navigate a difficult economy. Damien has written a book called Outrank, which can be downloaded on his website. Damien's portfolio includes MBA, Utah Jazz, Shark Tank and Inc. 500 clients. Damien is based in Salt Lake City, Utah. If you are enjoying this content, then please do consider subscribing and then you won't miss an episode. You can also go to businessgrowthtalks.com to be able to see more. Hello, Damien. How are you today? Hey, Mark. I appreciate the opportunity to chat. I'm doing good. Good. Excellent. It's so good to speak to you. We're going to talk about everything to do with marketing, especially SEO. I want, I've got some opinions on that, so I'll be very fascinated <laughs> to see where you land with it. It's a very interesting area, and I've spoken to lots of business people, and you tend to fall into two categories. Your SEO is, is your major business. That's how you should do to be able to promote your business. It takes a little bit longer. Or do you shortcut to do the ads? And I would actually say both strategies should be done at the same time. But that's for further on in our conversation. Let's see what your thoughts are. The first question is always on my show. What does a business mindset mean to you? I think that will vary depending on the phase in which you are in entrepreneurship. When your empathy of being a business owner or an aspiring entrepreneur, I think you default to financial incentive, excuse me. I think the motivator in the beginning is always the financial reward. But then as you move on, as you move on and you start to grow, I think a couple of things happen. One is when you become fortunate enough to start to have positive cash flow, disposable income, and you get your base needs met, then things change significantly. And I don't think as early stage entrepreneurs, you realize that's the first benchmark. Like in your mind, it's like a bazillion dollars is the benchmark. Mm. But then when you actually hit financial stability and you get your base needs met, then you realize that you're like, things are okay. And it allows you to calm down and look at the world a little bit differently. And then you still have financial incentive, obviously. But as that increases from a safety net of base needs to now having a comfortable level of disposable income, then almost everybody that I talk to I'm in a lot of high-level masterminds, surround myself with a lot of other successful people. And by far, the majority of us get to a point where we feel compelled to give back. And so I think two things change. One is that you move from a financial incentive to firstly, family and personal time. Your mindset completely changes from the next dollar to the next minute your whole motive becomes freedom of time. And I think that's the second mindset. So first is financial incentive. Second is freedom of time. And then third would be impact. You figure out your place in the world. You get a little bit comfortable. 
I don't think any of us are always fully comfortable in who we are. And we always will have some level of imposter syndrome and insecurities, but you start to realize no matter how lost I feel, a lot of people ask me for advice. And so you start to realize maybe I can help people. And so I think that's where my mind goes in the third mindset is you start leaning into impact and community and things like that. Do you miss the hustle of the startup? That's a f- funny you ask because I had a deep conversation about it yesterday. So it's top, okay. top of mind. Right. I'll answer that two ways. I really enjoy entrepreneurship so much to the extent that I think it's my hobby. I actually get a personal reward out of it. Now, I've always been very aware of the hustle and grind mindset, and I've always been very intentional about my approach on it. So like in the beginning, I've had my agency for 17 years, and I've been with my wife for 19. And so I started at the early years of our relationship. And even though we were together for two years, we waited five years before we had kids. And so I had this window where I was married without kids, but I but because I was married, I knew kids would be in the future sometime. And at that phase, it was, yes, embrace the hustle and grind. And I did it intentionally because my mindset was do it now while I have more flexibility. Because at some point, the reality is you probably are going to have to make a sacrifice to be successful. And so for me, it was like, now sounds like a better time than when I have more obligations later. Yeah. And that's certainly not to say that you can't hustle and grind once. And we can talk about that here in a minute, but that's not to say you can't do that if you already have a family and other obligations, but I had the opportunity to make a choice in advance. And so I really went in heavy. I would do super long days at the time my wife worked at a hospital, she'd get up at 4am. And so my idea was why not get up at 4am with her? And so by 8am, I would get more done than the majority of society. And then that would give me this regular eight hour window to accomplish even more. Mm. And so at the beginning, I embraced it. Then as I started to evolve the company, and there's lots of other conversations we can have about how you scale a company and the phases that come with that. But when I started to go through those phases, that you start to realize certain things that you enjoy more than others. And so you start to have to pick and choose. And then nowadays, so like the conversation I had yesterday is no, I don't. I'm in this total opposite phase where not only have I started to reduce the things that I don't want to spend my time on, but are still a necessity in the business. And so I have to delegate those. I'm now even starting to minimize the things that I do to do because I'm at a point now where there's, even though I've reduced the things so much, that doesn't mean I'm still not in the business all day, every day. It just has redirected my time. But at some point you realize that even though you enjoy the things, you should probably let somebody else do them. And so now I'm in a, I'm in a total opposite perspective where it's like, how much can I reduce and how much can I eliminate while protecting quality control? Yeah. Amazing. And we'll get on to growing, scaling businesses at a later stage, but that's interesting. Because I, I didn't become an entrepreneur till I was 40. Uh, I'm 43 now, so I've been doing it about three years. Oh, you're a baby. I am a baby in in, in this world. <laughs> I, I did corporate for 13 years. And it's interesting, My me and my wife also didn't have kids straight away. We went a period without kids. And that was when I was turning the corner in my career and started having promotions and moving forward and building a career. And, and I always say my second child... She's never going to listen to this, so it's okay. My, <laughs> se- my, 
my second child was so she's seven now and that was right in the middle where things were exploding in my career and I was leaving very I was getting a quarter to in, in eight. a good way or a bad way in a good way no it was really I was getting successful and I was moving along the career ladder and there was more responsibility and they were asking me to do different things and do it more into sales and more I was, I was worked for a consulting firm and and the early years of my youngest I was getting up at 6 30 getting into the office for eight getting home because I had US clients so I was leaving the office at 8 p.m and getting home at nine and and since so it first started with the pandemic so we were all at home so it had more there was more space to be at home and be with the kids and actually during the pandemic I actually quit my job and decided to start a few different businesses some have been successful some haven't and have gone by the wayside but now that flexibility that I have that I still predominantly work from home, so I'm a lot more available for my kids. And it's like before our call, the kids came home, I just popped down for 10, 15 minutes, said, hi, how are you? Had a little conversation. They told me a story about their day. And I get what you're saying. That stage when you're at that point where you're, you have minutes with people. So time with people is a lot more important than necessarily the dollars or the pound signs. If you can get that mm -hmm. sorted to a point, you're going to be all right. Your time is the next. So I'm, I'm at the point of time is precious to me. And mm -hmm. therefore those times that I have with my kids and my wife, spending time with them is super important. So I get what you're saying. I wish I'd started the business when we first got married and did I was pouring my heart and soul into the corporate career, but I wish I'd been fueling a business, but it took me a longer, longer journey than some to, to get to, to become a business owner, but it's a lot better. Like time management is so much easier doing your mm. own thing rather than having to be at your desk between nine to five or longer often. I think a lot of people, Get, get scared of the idea there, there's a lot of you know, entrepreneurship isn't for everybody but there's certainly mm -hmm. a lot of people that mm -hmm. aspire for it yeah uh, but i don't think that enough of them try and, and understandably there seems to be a sense of stability in the it's traditional risk, career. isn't it and i'm interested to, i want to go into another question but what's your appetite to risk when you started the business versus where you are now do you still take risks well, now yeah, for different reasons. So in the beginning, you take risks because you have to, and then once you have, once you get stable, you you can afford to take risks, and so they're calculated. I'll give my opinion on that here in a moment. But I think what's interesting about the the general population, and and I what I'm hoping to encourage aspiring entrepreneurs to hear, is that the what was interesting about the pandemic is I think it discredited and disproved a lot of those false safety nets that people had about the corporate world, because probably one of the biggest things that people fear taking a leap of faith on entrepreneurship is because, but I'd be leaving a stable job. Yeah. Look at what happened during the pandemic. Yeah. Look who got slaughtered and look who excelled. The world that got slaughtered was not the entrepreneurship world. That world yeah. was more safe than the corporate world. Unless you're so, in hospitality. And then like restaurants and hotels, then you were in massive. There's always exceptions. Yeah. It was a unique perspective that really put a, a spotlight on 
the vulnerability of the corporate world, because I think that's what people lean on and why they stay in their safety, their little safety blanket and why they're scared. Yeah. And, and I think that's a unique perspective for some people to look at and go, yeah, you know what? Maybe this isn't as scary mm. to, to take that leap. Back to your question about my appetite for risk. It's evolved because in the beginning, I can tell you very specifically when I chose entrepreneurship um, because it was a choice of risk. And what happened was I was working at, I had the opportunity to work for work at home remotely for a company and they wanted me to go to, they worked, they were in Las headquartered in Las Vegas, Nevada. And I just didn't want to raise a family in Las Vegas. And so I told them I, uh, I'm interested in the job, but I don't want to move my family. I don't want to have kids yet, but I don't want to move my wife and future kids. And so they said, that's fine. We'll revisit it in a year for now. You can work at home. So I took that opportunity to work on my side hustle in the mornings. And then I had the, the actually, I, I, uh, it was the reverse. In the mornings, I would work on the, the day job's responsibilities. And by the time it was 8 a.m., I was done. And so I had the whole rest of the day to work on my side hustle. Wow. Now, what happened was that company, the owner of that company got into legal trouble from the company he owned before it. And he had a, a civil lawsuit that had financial penalties and things like that, but he didn't have a criminal lawsuit. Well, the okay. criminal lawsuit caught up. And so when they caught up, then they also investigated his new business that I was employed right. at. Right. And so one day I was, this was before Slack and things like that. And I was on AOL Instant Messenger, and this is how we mm. would communicate with our team. Mm. And I couldn't get a hold of anybody. And so I called the office, nobody answered. And then somebody sent me a message and said, did you hear? I'm like, did I hear what? I can't get a hold of anybody. And what had happened is they got shut down by all the local and federal government. Like it was like a movie, like guns yeah. busting down doors Whoa, because of the criminal stuff that they started to investigate on the guy that ran it. And so at that moment I had three choices. Uh, the first choice was to wait to see if I still had a job. The second choice was to give up and go look for a new job. Or the third choice was to bet on myself and the side hustle that I had slightly established. Yeah. And so I bet on myself. And the the risk at that moment that I calculated against was the the day job was about 60% of my income, mm -hmm. but it was like 80% of my time. Yep. And so in freeing up, in, in betting on myself, I would lose the majority of my income, but gain the majority of my time. And like I said, I didn't have kids yet. My wife had a job. And so I did the math and between my side income and her nine to five income, we could pay our mortgage. We could pay our car payment. We didn't really have any other debt beyond that. And so that seemed like about as calculated as a risk as I would ever have mm -hmm. an opportunity to bet on. And so that's mm -hmm. when I chose entrepreneurship. And by freeing up that time, if I remember, that was 17 years ago, if I remember right, I made that income back in just two to three months because wow. I was able to commit so much more time yeah. to dedicating to my one-on-one -on -one clients. And then from there, we can go down that path at, at some point. But so that was my initial risk. And then, like I said before, in the beginning, you have to take risks out of necessity to get exposure and, and clients and build your brand awareness. But then as your company evolves and you have disposable income, then it almost becomes a game. Like you need to take risks because you need the visibility, mm -hmm. but it's not that anybody likes to lose money, but when you have positive cash flow, there's an entertainment value of here are the options of risk. Which one is the funnest? Yeah. We'll be back after a quick break. 
When it comes to influencer marketing, there's a podcast that covers it all that you will want to add to your playlist. The Influence Factor by the Influencer Marketing Factory. They talk about influencer marketing, social media, the creator economy, social commerce, and much, much more. They cover all aspects, including the creator economy, social commerce, the latest trends, the metaverse, TikTok trends, and that's just the beginning. The Influence Factor by the Influencer Marketing Factory. Add the podcast to your playlist right now. That's interesting. And I think you're right. Risk changes. Some people de-risk. Some people change the risk, as you say, into a game. And lots of people have invested in stock market and actually tried to learn how to invest in stock market because it's a game. It's it's how you can beat the system. Whether you actually can is questionable, but I like, thank you for that explanation. So you started SCO National in 2007. So we were just in, we call it the credit crunch, the sort of recession that was hit by the banks. How did you manage to survive and thrive through that period? At the time, I didn't know any different because it was the my my first year, second year of business. Of course, I was aware that there was big, scary things going on in the world, but I didn't have a before and after to compare it to from a perspective of being self-employed. But in retrospect, it's pretty clear because the same thing has happened. When the credit crunch happened, I doubled. Now, now that's relative because the first year when I was self-employed, I when I was doing it on the side, I think I was making 20, 25,000. The, the first year, fully self-employed, I don't know, 35, 40, 50,000. But then when it was like that second year into the third year, and then the recession happened it is when I doubled into six figures. And then fast forward a little bit to 2020, I went from 10 team members to 30 in six months. And doubled it, doubled again then. And it's debatable right now if we're in a recession yeah. and I am doubling again. And the pattern in all three of those moments is that I have consistently invested in the loyalty of my clients. And so I think back to the current economic situation, whatever it ends up being when we look back at it in the future. I don't know yet, but the prior to 2020 and 20 and 2008, it, I realized that what happened is as other businesses and marketing agencies were starting to lose market share and clients were starting to cancel, but I was increasing. I noticed what the difference was is that if you think about the perspective of your client and they're understandably having to be budget sensitive, they're going to pay attention to who they can trust their dollar with the most. And, and of course they want to return on it, but it's mm. almost like subconsciously they make their decision based on what's the safest. It's just like you talk about stocks. And, and so it's like, when you're in a risky financial economic time, what, what do you do with your money? You, you probably de-risk and you don't put it in stocks and you put it in some sort of bank product that just gives a fixed return. You're like, something fixed is better than nothing. And so it's almost well, like Well, I that. actually think in 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 a recession with a downsell of a market is actually the time to invest. 
I agree. You and I agree. <laughs> but but most I think people the, don't. The general but... <laughs> population. Right? So when there's something scary, most people. So I do agree that when there's something scary, that is the biggest opportunity. Yeah. But most people don't, or at least their first move is not to figure out what the risky move is. And so their first reaction at the very least is how do I protect? Yeah. And I noticed that was the pattern is I had relationships with these clients and they knew through those discussions and dialogue, just like before you and I hit record, we established a brief relationship, which yeah. makes this conversation easier to proceed. Yeah. And so it's the same in business. I had invested time in my clients to let them know that I actually care about their success. Yeah. And, and of course I want profitability as well. Mm. But right next to that is their success in my mind. And, and wow. so I am genuinely pursuing decisions based on their best interest. And I think that was a differentiating factor as I had taken the time to plant the seeds in the relationship before it they were needed to be harvested. Right. That's interesting. And, and we should be client-centric as an entrepreneur, as a business owner, it's, it's an interesting, I heard this uh, a little while ago, the whole idea that, yes, we should be client-centric, but actually we should be employee-centric and get the best people mm -hmm. and the, the right people in the business because they will look after the clients. So actually, mm -hmm. like you were saying that you were very much client-centric, but I'm assuming through that period you were you employed people, you brought people on board on your business and you were investing mm -hmm. in them so that the, they could actually do the delivery side as well. Is, is that what happened? Totally, exactly, yeah. So I've always been, so I don't have a big separation between employee-centric and, and client-centric. To me, it's just in general, it's people-centric. And though I am very capitalistic, it is not my deciding motivator. Okay. And so when you give yourself the comfort. The thing that's weird about entrepreneurship is, and especially with social media is we're always exposed to this highlight reel of unicorn success stories. And so we're almost educated to, to be greedy mm -hmm. and we're groomed that it's okay to squeeze out the last dollar of every opportunity. And I'm not going to say that's right or wrong for me. It's not what I like to do. I don't think there's anything wrong with pursuing capitalism, but I do think there's a difference in moral integrity and the sustainability of your approach to capitalism. Yeah. When you put people first, whether it's your team members or clients, when 2020 hit, I, I actually have a really interesting story I'll try to abbreviate that's applicable to this. So I have a team of about 60, half of them are in the United States, the other half are in the Philippines. And in 2020, I went and visited my team in the Philippines. And at the time I only had six, if I remember right, that were in the Philippines. And if you remember the sequence of dates of when the pandemic started, I left from the United States to the Philippines on March 7th, 2020. Oh no. <laughs> and so... Right. I'm in Utah and we had planned this months in advance and the buildup to March being the accelerant of the pandemic yeah, was what, when it started, when we started to be like, huh, I wonder if this is a thing was I had planned the entire trip around 
people centric stuff. Like how do I bond with my team? So we had a concert that we were going to go, we were going to go see green day because a bunch of seemed like green day. And we found out they were going to be in the Philippines. And then it was like December, January green day canceled because of the pandemic. That's interesting. And then February was, Hey, this thing's in the United States now, Uh, whatever. And then it was like one week before I left and it said, Washington state is the United States first hotspot. And I was like, I'm flying into Washington on the way to the Philippines. And so when I left, it was interesting to see the difference in how communities were reacting because in different airports, there were either everybody in mass or nobody in mass. And then I land in, so I go from Utah to Washington state to Tokyo and then to the Philippines. And so I get to the Philippines largely disassociated with the news because I'm not on my phone 24-7. I don't follow the news a lot. And I was in a different country, so I wasn't mm. exposed to mm. the media outlets. And so the first, I was supposed to be there for eight days. I ended up being there for four. So the first day was amazing. Did cool stuff, went island hopping, snorkeling. Second day, we went to a bunch of touristy places. Fast forward to the, the what ended up being the last day. That morning, I had no idea that was going to be the last day. And we were doing our activities and we went to this place called the underground river, which is like one of the new seven wonders of the world. You take this canoe 45 minutes into just a total darkness cave. All you can see is what the guide has on a headlamp come out. It's 45 minutes in 45 minutes out. So I come out an hour and a half later and I have a bunch of missed phone calls from my dad, which is really weird because the time difference was midnight his time. Right. And I call him and he starts telling me how they're shutting down airports. And he says, Italy shut down and South Korea shut down. And I almost flew through South Korea. Right. And so I'm looking things up and I didn't see anything about Japan. And I told my team, I said, I think this is the writing on the wall. I don't know what's happening, but something's happening. And so within two hours of talking to my dad, I was back at the airport and I the airport was dead. Like I, I left at the perfect storm. I left at the eye of the storm where everybody paused and was going, what are we doing? And I just got lucky enough to be one step ahead of them. And when I left, the Philippines shut down 18 hours after I left. And so if I had not moved exactly when I left, that three month window ended up being six months, total lockdown and they didn't lift all of their things until just like a year ago. They were way behind wow. everybody else. Wow. Now, the reason I gave you that background to come back to your question about being employee centric is when other businesses were letting people go, which I understand that decision has to be made sometimes, I doubled down and reassured my team that everything was fine. Right. So I didn't let anybody go. And even if, and we were also fortunate that. I didn't know at the time when I committed to not letting anybody go that we would be fine, but I, excuse me, but I was willing to make that bet and we had a little bit of reserves Yeah. and then we were fortunate enough that business increased a couple of days later. But what happened was by me proactively making that commitment to my team is it brought a sense of calm, mm. which, which was needed mm. and embedded loyalty into our company. And we already had that but it brought a whole other level. And you talk about your team will take care of your clients if you take care of them. Totally true. It's totally true. You can't, and you have to lead by example. Like you can't have a company motto. You can, but 
it doesn't matter what those words say. Yeah. And you could even have completely conflicting words versus actions. What's going to, what's going to win is what the actual actions are. Yeah. hundred percent agree. We've been on this call for some time now. And as you are an SEO business owner expert, there are probably people shouting, listening to this show, watching this show saying, but we want to know what Damon thinks about why <laughs> SEO is better than paid ads. So thank you for all of that. Com- I'd love the conversation, but I have to get to this, especially on Google. Why is SEO better than paid ads? I'll be the first marketer that says it might not be. I'm not one that throws rocks at the forms of marketing because I think if it's profitable, why not? do both. There are some advantages and disadvantages based on certain circumstances. And then depending on which circumstance you're in, you can decide. The biggest of the disadvantage of SEO is that there's truth that it takes time. Where, where most SEOs fail to communicate is why it takes time. And so you're basically building up the credibility of your website and, and that's done. And you can really simplify SEO into three areas of fulfillment. So the first area is your site structure. Is your website easy to use? Is it load quickly? Is it mobile friendly? The second category is content. Like you're not showing up on Google unless you tell Google what you offer. You got to get things into written words. And then the, the third area is external credibility. So do other websites talk about your brand? Do they link to your website? Most of your visibility is going to come from that ladder too. Like you got to get content, you got to get credibility, but that will only be effective if you have a solid foundation. So where I tell people to start is don't overthink your website. Like I've seen the most bland, minimalistic websites consistently outperform the most visually stunning websites. Because what happens is if they're too visually stunning, they're distracting from the call to action. So minimalism almost always wins. So if you're new, start with a simple website and then double down on your content, communicate why you're an expert, communicate. If you're in business, it's either generally because of two reasons. One, because you're the most passionate at that thing or you have the best to offer on that thing. And so whichever of those two it is, communicate those things. Now, the advantages to SEO is that once you give it enough time to drive the wins, it it has a compounding effect and it's more sustainable. Like you really have to screw it up or be excessive to lose all that progress. But take those things and paid ads is almost the exact opposite pros and cons. The advantages are you can get ads up, up and running quickly. doesn't mean they're going to be profitable. I think that's what paid ads guys fail to communicate is, yeah, I can get an ad up tomorrow, but it doesn't mean you're going to be making money. Yeah. And probably the last thing is when you run ads, you're basically renting your customers. Yeah. You don't own that traffic source. Now, in organic, obviously, you don't own Google, but like we said, it's really hard to screw it up once you're there. But with paid ads, the moment you turn off your ads, you turn off your exposure to your leads. So you were saying about the why the sometimes it's not communicated why the SEO takes longer. You told me site structure, content, and extra credibility are the bedrocks of being able to make SEO work. But so for the content side, could someone is someone better to add a blog? let's say a written blog rather than a video, but let's say a written blog, every one every week for the next 10 years, or should they release 50 blogs on one day? What works better for SEO? The answer is 
quality over quantity. So there's no such thing as too much good content. So put out as much as you can up until the point that it starts to devalue the value of it. So put it up as much as you can until you start to risk quality or your sanity. <laughs> All right. Cause content writing content sucks and there's some people that enjoy it, but most people it, it's not leisurely. So in your two examples, if you have 50 topics that you can write value added unique content, yeah, put them up because the more that you have that Google can read that associates you as an expert for whatever you offer, right. the better it is. But I would not put it up purely for vanity sakes of saying I accelerated 50 pieces of content right. faster. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. And 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 so you're saying that there is a place for paid ads. If it works, then double down. So our example of we've got a booking agency, a podcast booking agency, and we introduced Google ads uh, a couple of months ago. We've been doing other things to to generate leads and our sales calls quadrupled every mm -hmm. week, quadrupled the number of sales calls that we were having. And that led to a, a, about 33% of those calls turning into clients. So our, our conversion rate was pretty high. It's dipped a little bit in the last, but we're just probably talking about 20, 25% success rate of converting those clients now. If someone who's starting a business or is it has an established business, but they really want to kick on, is there a place where you say, SEO will work itself out. I'll put content up when I've come up with content, but I'll add it when it's needed. But the other side of it, I'm going to really try and leverage ads as much as I can. And as long as I'm making a, a, a profit on what I'm spending, I'll let the SEO work itself out over a period of whatever that period of time is, years, versus I'm going to double down on ads. Is that the best way to think about these this thing? Your decision is going to be either time or money. So which one do you have more of? On the paid ad side, the you let's talk about the profitability and the margins between paid ads versus organic. A general analogy is with paid ads, you put a dollar in, you you get two dollars out. In the, fir the first couple of weeks, maybe a couple of months, you're going to put a dollar in and get nothing out. You have to burn a little money to A/B test, figure out where your audience is. Yeah. Now. That dollar in, two dollars out is usually the best case scenario. And even as you touched on, your conversion rate decrease. So you reach a point of dilution with paid ads. W with organic, it's a dollar in, nothing out. A dollar in, nothing out. But then instead of a dollar in, two dollars out, it becomes a dollar in, five thousand dollars out. So it begins to hockey stick. So at some point, Yes, paid ads can drive profit potentially quicker. The margin is going to be lower. Yeah. But if a small dollar amount is of significance to put food on the table and get some momentum, probably paid ads, yeah. If you're not totally dependent on the immediate success of the business because you have a day job or this is just the second or third or fourth business, you'll probably have a higher profit return on your investment. Yes. Uh, not quickly, yes. but higher if you go into organic first. 
and this was me for a long time on Google. And I want to know what your sort of your the user experience side of people on Google. So for a long time, I never clicked on sponsored ads. Yeah, I always only went to scroll down the three that they give you and go to the person that was at the top. Now, actually, my mind has been changed recently. Well, not recently, the last mm. three, four, five years that actually sponsored ads can be valuable as well. But just do people still from a user experience on Google still do that? Right, They've got three paid ads. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go down to the top person. Does that still happen a lot? Yeah, it's called banner blindness. So okay. what happens is they see an ad, what's an ad, and so you skip past it. What's interesting is maybe after we're done recording, I can share a graphic with you and you can include it in the show notes. There, there's a great study by a company called Conductor. And what they did is they generalized traffic into four sources. And so it was paid search engines, organic search engines, paid social, organic social. Mm -hmm. And so it was like out of those from source to website, which has the largest percentage of lead source and, and, and clicks. And out of those four, what was interesting was not only was organic number one, but by the margin, it, it wasn't even in the same game. So what it was, social media drove 2% of traffic from source to website. Paid ads drove 6% and organic drove 64 Really, And so what that tells me is what we touched on before is that doesn't mean you don't do social and you don't do paid ads. If those are driving yeah. return based on your time or, or money, then why not do them? Mm. But look at how much opportunity is being left on the table on organic. And then also organic usually converts better because it's a different buyer intent. Like when you run paid ads, especially on social media, you're interrupting them. And mm -hmm. so if you're lucky enough to catch your attention, then you have to convert them as quickly as possible. And yep. you have to educate them as quickly as possible because they weren't looking for your thing. Yep. But organic, somebody sought out and had the intent to buy or at the very least learn more about yep. something that you show up for. Yeah. And something we, me and my business partner thought about was that difference between social media where you're interrupting someone from what they're doing versus Google, whether it's ads or SEO, is much stronger because there's an intent behind searching for what you provide as a product or service. So we've mm -hmm. always preferred, although social media, I, I do content for social media for my businesses and that does generate leads. It's very interesting, people who spend time on Google, although it is more expensive than than organic content or paid sponsor like promoting posts and things the i always love that with google that there is a there's always an intention behind actually looking to either be educated inspired or you're looking for something to purchase much more than social media yeah it also depends on what audience what industry you're in ironically enough for me running an seo agency the last thing i want to rank for is the word seo because the majority of people searching SEO are other agencies looking at where they show up for SEO, or it doesn't imply, you got to pay attention to what you're targeting because SEO to me doesn't imply they're wanting to hire an agency. They could be searching to learn about it because they want to do it on their own, or they're looking to educate themselves to start a career in it. And so you also have to pay attention to not only who you're targeting, but the intent in the phrases in which you're targeting. Yeah. How often does Google change its search engine algorithm? Daily. Daily. So they change it. They 
usually have multiple minor updates daily, significant updates every couple of months. But we really briefly touched on earlier, like those three fundamentals, which are structure, content, credibility. Yeah. Now in the 17 years of running this agency, we've never had a client have a negative impact after an algorithm. At the very least, they're neutral, if not positive. And so when you pay attention to those fundamentals, and then this also ties in where we talked about putting people first. So if you start, I, I often laugh and say the best way to do SEO is to not do SEO. And, and what I mean by that is quit trying to game the algorithm. And yeah. so when you put the people first in the content that you're creating and actually trying to solve a problem of theirs and assist yeah. them, yeah, those become the more valuable pieces that show up higher, which bring you the traffic. Yeah, I would agree. I would. We'll be back after a quick break. If you want tips and strategies on how to start, grow, and monetize your business online, check out the Digital Revolution podcast with Eli Adams. We interview digital experts from around the world that share their personal stories. They talk about what they're currently working on and where they see the future going. But most importantly, they share tactics in their specific area of expertise with the hope of helping you improve your digital presence online. You can listen to the Digital Revolution podcast on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, iHeartRadio, or simply click on the link in the show notes below. Agree with that. How do you measure success? We touched on this earlier, but how do you measure success for you? Me as an individual or from a lens of SEO? You as a business. Me as a business kind of has two roles. There's the owner of the business and then there's the owner that runs the team that runs the business. So me as an individual owner, I, I would go back to where it's freedom of time, right? It's okay. Can you build a lifestyle by design? Me as an owner that supports other people mm. on the client side, it's driving a return on their investment on the team side. It's are they in a position in which they get some sense of fulfillment out, out of it? One of the worst things you can do as a business owner is just look at a team member as a productivity metric mm. because you're going to burn them out. And so like when we bring in new team members, among a variety of things that we ask them, one of the most important things we ask them is, A, what are you good at? And B, what do you like to do? Because they may be really good at something because they've historically repetitively done it. It yeah. doesn't mean it's what they like to do. So mm -hmm. I will hire on the ladder. We'll hire them on the direction they want to go yeah. because they will be more of a compassionate, loyal team member. So between team members and clients, ultimately, I think okay, what supports them. And then if we can deliver the, that, then that's the success. And then for me at the stage in which I'm in, in entrepreneurship, for me, it's freedom of time. We're jumping around a little bit, but I want to ask this question about when did you realize that you were at the stage where you needed to put in systems and processes to be able to grow your business? I can tell you very specifically. It was probably around year seven or eight where I documented things. And it was probably around year four or five that I really started to invest in expanding the team. I got to a point, I got to a point of resistance where it was either quality or, or sanity that was going to be, be at risk. And so I hit a point of necessity to start bringing on team members. 
now there was a, a point where I was listening to two books in the same time frame. One is E-Myth Revisited and the right. other is Four Hour Workweek. Yeah. And what I find interesting about listening to those two in a similar time frame was being able to compare the, the the differences between the two. Had I read them at different times, I don't think I would have had the same takeaway. And what I realized was Four Hour Workweek tells you how to compress time and cut corners. E-Myth Revisited emphasizes the importance of building a business that's dependent on processes and not people. Yep. Because as people leave, you lose that skill set. But if you establish the processes, you sustain mm -hmm. that skill set. So when I listen to those two at the same time, I realized that you don't want to embrace four-hour work week first because you don't want to cut corners and compress time until you know what's at stake after you document your processes. Yeah. Yeah. When I started to scale was the pain point. And then when I documented the processes, like you're going to have procedures at some point unless you want to fail. If you don't, you will fail. It is a guaranteed necessity. You'll have to have processes to scale. Yeah. Now, what happened was when I started documenting the processes, I will be the first to raise my hand and say, it sucks if you're going to do it right. So when I did it, I realized it was going to take a lot of time and that I never wanted to do it again. Right. And so if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it right and I'm going to commit to it. And so I did it. It took two or three hours every other day for probably a year. And the reason why it took me so long is because in the world of SEO, there's a lot of variables. Are they an e-commerce website or a non-e-commerce website? Are they on this platform or that platform? Do they have content or do they have no content? And so when I started building out the processes, there was two phases. And, and so when you get to the point where you document your processes, start with the black and white stuff. Start with the very obvious things that you can literally say, step one, step two, step three. Because what you need to train your brain on is dynamic stuff. You start to, you need to start to see the gaps in between step one and step two and step three. And so phase two of documenting, which took the longer part was when I realized, how do I document the things that are not documentable? And wow. that's at that point, you train your team on thought processes so they can figure out how to get the answer themselves. And what's been your experience of, you said you've got a team in the Philippines so if people that are either building businesses are looking to bring people from overseas, mobile working is a lot more accepted than it was possibly three or four years ago. But what's been your experience of having Filipino? I assume they're mainly VAs or do you have a mix in your team? So half my team's in the States, the other half is in the Philippines and all the team in the Philippines work exclusively for me. So they're not part of a virtual assistant agency or anything like that. The What I've learned over the years is there's the, the, the Filipinos are really loyal if you communicate your loyalty first. There's a big difference in the culture there. There's a big scarcity mindset. They're really nervous about doing things wrong. And the reason why I mentioned that is because they're going to be as good or as bad as the documentation you provide them. Because if you don't provide the documentation, they're going to take the most conservative choice right. because they don't want to lose their job. Yeah. So that creates a couple opportunities. One is it creates an opportunity to establish a, a really loyal team member by you making a gesture first. The other thing is when you take the time to help them realize the glass ceilings that have been produced in their society you set these people free, like you completely change their lives. And when you're able to change somebody's lives, they're willing to be proactive 
on your behalf. And so not only is there like a, a loyalty to productivity, but there's a, a personal loyalty that they end up committing to you. Wow. And so you end up having these really cool things that happen. And I've been asked to be a godfather twice to wow. team members. I was invited to a, a wedding in the Philippines. At the time, my wife was pregnant with our daughter and the wedding was on our third trimester. So I, I told them I appreciate the gesture, but I can't go. But what happened after that was really interesting. So the average Filipino is probably something around five foot three inches and I'm five feet, 11 inches. And so reasonably taller. And because I couldn't go, the relationship that we had established was significant enough that they went and bought a life-size cardboard cutout of me. And so there's what we now call a cardboard Daven that is in real wedding lion pictures. So th there's lots of funny stories behind that. Cardboard Damon still lives on. They send me pictures of him in the garden and playing guitar. But the willingness of somebody to go to that extent, because relationship means that much, emphasizes the opportunity you have in giving these people opportunities. So what's the plan for the business the next two to five years? That's evolving. I have an idea. Exit plan, maybe? I don't think so now. No. And I've had offers and they've been attractive, but we talked about entrepreneurship being uh, a hobby and enjoyable. And so I think that's why a couple of years ago, it's probably two years ago, maybe three, I never calculated what the dollar amount I would need would be because I live comfortably. And so I never wanted to calculate an, an exit rate because I didn't want to know if I already had it and then get lazy. Right. And then a couple of years ago, I calculated, I said, what would I, not what do I want, but like realistically, what's a base that I could sustain a lifestyle and, and just walk away. And I defined that number and I hit it less than a year later. And that was an interesting perspective to have. Mm. And so I certainly could exit, but I still enjoy what I do. I'm so passionate about what I do. I enjoy entrepreneurship. I enjoy the relationships I have in this type of industry. I will probably remove myself more from the day-to-day. -day. I hired a COO two years ago. He already has the majority of the day-to-day -day operations, which has allowed me to redirect my time. I think ultimately I'm going to redirect it further, which will, we talked about community and giving back and human elements, things like that, where I'm personally compelled lately is to build some sort of community around entrepreneurship. It'll probably have an emphasis, obviously, on SEO, put out some material on teaching other people. I already wrote a book on it. I want to translate that into some course material. So I'll probably move more into the thought leadership position in right. the industry of SEO. Interesting. Look, we're coming to the end of the interview. I ask the same six questions to all my guests. They're quick fire questions. They don't need a quick fire answer. What's the best decision that you've made? We'll be back after a quick break. The Coaching Conversation 2024. This podcast is 100% dedicated to leadership and leadership within the workplace coaching area. We work with companies throughout the world teaching leaders how to coach their employees. This podcast is dedicated to teaching specific strategies, frameworks, coaching models, and now artificial intelligent strategies to help leaders drive greater teamwork, collaboration, cooperation, greater attitudes, better motivation, coaching career development, just to name a few. I hope you'll check out our podcast.
marrying my wife. And then if it's business, documenting processes. What's the best piece of advice you've been given? I will answer that with the opposite. I've learned way more by seeing people screw things up, particularly former employers, than I've ever learned from any guidance. Do you have coaches and mentors? I don't have one-on-one coaches, but I'm in multiple high-level masterminds, 50,000 a year apiece. So I'm surrounded by a lot of people with good momentum, but not anybody individually. Okay. Awesome. Who's the person that's helped you most in your career? The last two employers I had because of how bad they screwed up their lives. <laughs> so the the second to last one, I was exposed to financial freedom, but then I saw the toxicity that was in his business and his personal life. And so that was a good contrast for me to see. I left him because of the toxicity. And then the last one I had before I started my agency, we touched on, I was attracted to him because of opposite reasons of the guy before, because he married his high school sweetheart, family first, really loyal. But unfortunately, the businesses before the one that I was participating in, he got greedy. And so it was, I was never a greedy person to begin with, but it was good to see how much financial incentive was available in the world and to realize that you still need to have morals in yeah. pursuing it and to prioritize the morals. Yeah, absolutely. Tell me about a regret that you have. I wish I would have documented processes sooner. I, it would have made life easier and I think I would have been further along faster. What about relationships? Is there a, it's one of the things that people say, because this is a very divisive question. I get often people saying, I don't have regrets. I'm a sum of the total of my good and bad behaviors. And I am who I am because of things that mm -hmm. did go well and things that didn't go well, which I totally get as an answer. But I'm just interested from your point of view, you've said about systems, we've talked about systems and processes, the importance of them. And it would have got you to where you wanted to be faster. But is there, is this, is along that way, have you got, to the point where you wish you hadn't have done that or wish you hadn't have said that or hadn't have structured a relationship or a way that you conveyed to somebody else? Is there anything like that sort of comes to mind? Confidently, no. Uh, I can tell you why. I think a lot of people do answer. I agree that's a fair reply that most people have. And, and that's generally my appreciation on my past experiences. But I think a lot of people also gloss over the why of things. For me, it, it has been the sum of all things and learning experiences. But everything that has, there, there's certainly been, there, there's been moments where at the time I didn't regret, but of course they were not comfortable situations. Mm -hmm. But years later, they protected me from something. Right. Because that minor mistake now put it on the radar to remember. And then yeah. the next time it came up, it would have been a major mistake. Yeah. But the second half of that answer, why I've never had any significant regrets is I've always been very calculated and I'm always, I think a lot of us in entrepreneurship, there's a couple different flavors, but generally two. One flavor is build the build the parachute after you've already jumped out of the airplane and move as fast as possible and figure it out as you go. And then the other one is move as slow as possible and be overly calculated. 
And I think I'm like 80% over here on the calculated side or I'm conservative enough to be slow enough to not make mistakes, but I'm also willing enough to, I'm certainly not super risky and I'm definitely more calculated than not. But I think the balance of where I'm at somewhere in between has allowed me a safety net to not have significant screw-ups while also maintaining forward momentum. Amazing. Thank you for your honesty. What are you most proud of? The freedom of time, for sure, with, with my family. Been with my wife for married 17 years, together 19. Love her more than ever. My kids, three kids, the availability to never miss a sports game, never miss my daughter's dance and practice and things like that. I think we all think that and aspire to that. But when you're fortunate enough to actually embrace it and see it, it it's a pretty significant difference. It is. It really is. And and I hundred percent agree. The flexibility that I now have to be able to do certain things with my kids is invaluable. Absolutely invaluable. What does legacy mean to you? That's I, I'm glad you asked that because that's a pretty significant part of my life. And I, I may have been asked before, but I think you're the first one that's asked it directly. Um, legacy is one of my prime motivators. When, you know, we talked about financial incentives and then after you get your base needs met, your perspective on the world changes. Um, and, and at some point you're like, none of this matters. Really none of it matters. Like, okay, you get the thing you want, you get the money you want, the materialistic thing is not going to make you happy, but you buy it anyway. And I think you should because you're not going to, you're going to tell yourself it doesn't matter, but you're not going to accept that it doesn't matter until you at least buy the thing once. So don't feel guilty about doing it. Get it over with. But once you get it over with, you're like, what's the point in any of this? And so you really start to go, what's my motivator beyond financial incentive? And so while I'm proud to be at the financial level that I'm at, I'm not materialistic about it and the only thing i spend not the only thing the majority of the thing that i spend my money on is my answer is always two things it's family and legacy i specifically mentioned legacy so like the majority of the things that i've invested my capital in are like we bought a lakefront property and so there's a place where we can go with our kids i bought a 20-foot pirate ship to put on the lake property so it has a playground and swings and it's like um, anything, anything of a, a significant price tag has been something that is for my family or legacy. And what does legacy mean for you, for your business? Like where, where do, once you're gone, if you've kept the business till you die, what, what's the, what happens to the business there? That's interesting. I think that evolves too. I can give you a couple of things that have come to my mind over the years. In the beginning of entrepreneurship, I think it's, this is my baby and I'm the best and I want it to live on forever and I deserve all the credit. And I definitely went through that phase. And then over the years, I became less emotional about the bragging rights of the company and more interested in the actual results and impact of it. Right. And now I think I'm at an interesting point where the business is still 100% my baby in one aspect as far as I still want it to succeed. I still want it to have results. I still have a great appreciation for all of our clients. But then, then on the other side, I've now been able to separate the emotional side of it. And so now it's not like this is a motivator for Damon exclusively. So I don't have 
I no longer have a desire to, let's say in 20 years from now, and the business has been sold and it goes on to be some mega corporation. If I'm in the footnotes, I don't know that I care anymore at some point. I would have been really pissed off if I wasn't. So I think that when it comes time for the business to change hands, I think I'll be more concerned with it being passed on to somebody that will maintain the legacy than my name having to be part of the legacy. Amazing. And lastly, I ask all of my guests, where can people find you if they want to find out more about you or your business? Super easy, damonburton.com. On there, you can get all my social media. There's a free copy of my SEO book and all my contact info. That's brilliant. Thank you so much for your time today, Damon. It's been fascinating. The whole early part about entrepreneurship, I think it, it, you gave great insight into what it is to grow a business and the challenges that you faced and how you overcame them. So it's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Mark. So that was Damon. And I was just thinking when we finished, this is the reflection stage, is this is a guy I'd actually quite like to go and have a beer with. He seems super intelligent, super entrepreneurial, but he had a, a humanity to him. Talked about his team, how important they were, how important the clients were. And I'd like to just spend some time with him, sit down, have a beer with him, pick his brains, kind of work and see the things that he was very open about things that could work for you, i.e. paid ads versus seo which does work takes longer he wasn't uh, uh, like objecting to either like obviously it was, uh, wasn't objecting to the paid ads as a route and so i found that really interesting i think he's got a great business model i love the fact that he doesn't want to give up and exit necessarily that's always a bit of a tricky subject with some entrepreneurs and and the last question about legacy it was like my business is passed to the right people and even if it grows to a massive corporation, I don't really need to be in the footnotes or maybe I'm in the footnotes, not in the major part of that sale. So I think the guy's very humble, very interesting. He's obviously got a deep knowledge working in that industry for such a long time, 17 years that he's run that business for. He's been through recessions, got out of recessions, doubled down and was more successful with with the with the recessions where we talked about 2007 eight and then the pandemic as well so i yeah i really enjoyed that i really enjoyed that and that whole idea of systemizing and setting up processes so important doesn't matter how early stage you are you should at least be thinking about that even if you aren't doing it at the moment and it took him a year to do his if you start a little bit earlier it won't be quite so severe and you can then incrementally uh, get it as you grow the business. So great guy, had a lot of fun talking to him. Really interesting about the PA, the PAs in uh, VAs, I should say, in Philippines and how he was able to bring them together as like a community in his business as well. Great guy, great business model, all the best for the future, Damon. And as I said, if you're ever in London, and you fancy a beer, I'd be very happy to do that. Thank you very much, guys. Thank you so much for listening to the show. It's been an absolute pleasure. And on to the next one. Thank you for listening to Business Growth Talks. This podcast is released every Monday, so don't miss an episode by subscribing to all podcast platforms, including Apple and Spotify.
have a great day.